Welcome to the Place Northwest Masterclass podcast series, where experts share their wisdom on key aspects of the property industry. We're tackling everything from how to convert a listed building to the best way to hold a public consultation. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe now at placenorthwest.co.uk slash subscribe or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Place Northwest Masterclass podcast series. I'm your host, Julia Hatmaker, and I'm also the deputy editor at Place Northwest, and I'll be guiding you through today's episode. We'll be delving into the ins and outs of designing commercial buildings for science. We're going to go over the basics of what is needed for a science space, then we'll establish a few key tips and finish off with a real-life example of a project that really excels in delivering a science space that is also sustainable. Joining me today are two masters in the craft of designing science buildings, Fairhurst Design Group Managing Director Mark Aidy and Director Laura Sherlicker. Mark, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Julia. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about Fairhurst's experience in designing commercial buildings for science? Uh, well, as a, as a company that's been around for 125 years, our DNA really is is in designing these for science. So, you know, from from our inception in 1896, which interestingly was when Marconi painted the wireless telegraph. So, you know, for 125 years, this company uniquely has seen huge changes in, in, in technology, science, culture, the whole the whole lot. And we've, as a company, have sort of ridden sort of side by side with that, designing buildings all the way through the years. So originally we started doing uh, buildings out of the textile industry, dye stuffs, which sort of then evolved into the chemical industry. And then, you know, through the 40s, aviation into the sort of 50s and 60s into university buildings, all sort of sciencey and industrial and manufacturing, and then into sort of big pharma in the 90s to the point where now we, where we get to is we, we as a company work across the UK on a huge range of science facilities from the very simple to the most complex that you'll find, you know, national national standard laboratories for very specific things. Um, and for a huge array of different sorts of clients, more so than ever over the last, you know, over the last two or three years, that the diversity of clients and people looking at the science sector as it's become more and more um, at the front of people's agenda, um, certainly through the pandemic, I think people have woken up to what science is all about. Some of us have been doing it for years and years and years and have been excited by it. But, you know, the general population is, is now understanding, actually, it's quite useful to have scientists and people who are um, really interested in, in, in developing medicines and, and, and improving society. So we, so as a company, we, we've, we've sort of rolled through the years doing this sort of work. And then today, we're really helping lots of different sorts of clients in producing buildings ready for um, a whole range of tenants and certainly the, the, the range of commercial space because uh, there are now more and more tenants out there looking for space, looking for what traditionally you wouldn't have, you know, 20 years ago, you weren't, you weren't looking at, um, you wouldn't have to develop space for um, speculative science uh, tenants. It, it almost wasn't a thing in the UK and then that's developed and developed and developed. And now today, it, everyone is looking as, at the science sector as being an opportunity for 
investment and development and and then suddenly there's this idea of the commercial science facility and how do you create something that we know we know and love in terms of offices actually how do you create that for 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 the for scientists and that's that's what we've been doing we sort of been doing it behind closed doors for years but now it's very much at the at the forefront of uh, of what we do and what what people are asking us to do great segue how is a science facility then different than your traditional office? Laura? Yeah, yeah, no problem. The um, space needs for life science users are really specific and differ from others. Uh, I mean, the challenge is you can walk into a science space and think it's just like an office. And that's because on the face of it, it normally is. But it really, the, the complexity behind the building is, is hidden and a lot of it you don't see. Um, from the complex MEP installations uh, and and how the science will actually operate. Um, Science spaces are generally built up of research areas where the science happens and then typically have write-up spaces adjacent, you know, which is like a traditional office where the scientists go and do their administrative work outside of the labs. Interestingly, these definitions are becoming quite blurred you know especially as you go into the more commercial sectors and things happen differently but you usually see it in some shape or form working in in that sense. Okay so taking that into consideration what are the basic needs of a science space? I mean write up is obviously basically very very close to a normal office environment however the labs are very different Uh, essentially when we create those science spaces we're creating environments that either protect the user or protect the research itself, um, creating a set of conditions for equipments or processes to happen specific to that science, be it, you know, highly clean spaces or dirty spaces. And that then comes down to how you deal with air pressures and, and things to control the flow of material and, and products and, and, and waste. You know, it's all about how much air is required in the space, what temperature controls are required, the humidity, um, and it all needs to be very robust, cleanable and safe when it comes down to the materials and products as well specified in those environments because there going to be lots of harsh chemicals used, um, you know, for all of these different types of science that happen. Um, and there are also spaces for people as well. You know, you can't forget that, that whilst all the things that we've learned over the years about creating great workplace environments, you know, we want to translate that also into labs, that they are places for people. One of the things I'm sure people will want to know is what makes something lab ready? Mark? Well, I think it, it, it's it's sort of fascinating, really, is that the, the terminology lab lab ready is sort of developed... I think it's developed quite recently as a way of trying to describe um, the ability of a, of a building to accommodate science, whatever that might be. Um, and there is a there is a there is a little bit of a trend where um, you know any effectively any building could be described as lab ready. It just dis, just depends on how much time money you have to invest in it to make it actually deliver science space. Um, but it, it, it but we we try and use it as a little bit more of a robust term in terms of being able to describe a building that has been designed in such a way that it can accommodate the sort of additional needs of of, of creating these environments that Laura talked about um, in terms of how, how we do that. So traditionally or typically in a, where we talk about a lab-ready building, it's got 
things like riser spaces, so the ability to move air up and down the building. It's got things like goods lift because material movement through a science building is important. It's it's got it's got the ability to be able to have lots of drainage because labs tend to be wet in the sense of having sinks and things like that. Um, and 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 you tend to also find uh, structural issues being 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 important. So you're you're concerned about. Um, how how much vibration is transferred into the structure and how much the structure moves around. So there were, and then things like um, you know a lab space needs lots of gases and lots of waste coming in and out and then consumables. So it's got a big service delivery service sort of area. So you tend to find all these factors are added in make make it very different to an office um, and put put quite a different sort of pressure on how you develop a building and you tend to find that you know where where offices are dis- described as sort of very efficient net to gross areas and all that sort of good stuff we we find lab labs are not as efficient and and we have to kind of educate people as to you have to understand that you can't develop a, a lab build lab buildings have so much extra stuff that you need to do is it is efficiency is slightly different so in terms of lab ready buildings it has a certain these certain characteristics that mean it's ready to go it doesn't necessarily have to have all the equipment in it or all the plant or all those things but it has these qualities in it that um mean that it makes it very easy to to develop and uh, and we're seeing there's an awful lot of work going on in terms of looking at existing buildings and how they can be um they can be developed for science and some of those qualities you're looking at in terms of that existing building as to whether or not you can create riser space and put a goods lift in or does it have one already and so you find things like large format retail developments they tend to have sort of similar qualities and that which make them very very good for change sort of moving over into uh, into a lab use but then you might look at you know, certain offices and and they can be quite tricky to do because they're very much designed specifically for that that one use so that that to us is what lab ready means in terms of how easy it is to to then turn it into a lab um, in the future and of course that that that's good for the old sustainability side of things as well because you know we should be going forward making sure these build you know we we don't design buildings that are too tightly focused on a specific use Okay, so I feel like I have a grasp on the basics. Now I want to get into the things you need to know. I want to design a commercial building for science use. What is one thing that I need to know? Laura? So I think there's those, what are the basic and universal requirements for science space? So things that it has to be flexible and adaptable. Um, That's because like science is ever changing. The avenues of exploration continue to expand. So those specific needs of life sciences are ever changing as technology, as equipment changes. So, you know, being adaptable to those ever changing uh, needs of the scientists and the research is really important. How you control those environments, as we've mentioned before, to do with air, temperature and humidity, again, relative to the unique environments that suit the science that's going on. Um, lots of access to power, data, you know, flexibility with how you can plug and play equipment, how you can move it around and the load requirements of that equipment. And therefore, to do that, 
large floor plates. So large floor to ceiling heights and also, you know, a good grid structure that, that allows for bench positioning to change all those specific kind of principles for that the, the human kind of interaction with the benching and that configuration relative to the metrics of the human body. Um, really important, again, is to do with like clean and dirty regimes to do with waste materials so bringing new products in taking products away and the crossover of those but also how you deliver goods to the building and how you move it around the building safely given that you've got quite hazardous materials as well and then drainage fundamental the principles of drainage you need kind of lots of drainage you also need to consider what's being put down drains um you know so it's not getting into you know water courses and you know larger kind of science clusters have specialist detection to make sure stuff doesn't go into you know our our kind of drainage systems that ultimately then go back into to us Um, and those specialist services so extraction gases hazardous chemicals and biodiesels are, are all those universal requirements that you've got to get right to make buildings flexible for science i mean it's really it's really interesting what what makes it a sort of fascinating job and a fascinating area of architecture is is the the rapid change of 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 technology um on a, almost on an hourly basis so yeah we, we we're working we did a job down in cambridge where we were um developed space for dna sequencing um and you and then if you just look at that technology something a process that took took years to years to understand how to do it and then originally the the, the kind of kit that was developed filled the room um and took months now takes minutes and sits on a bench and What's really fascinating is we, you know, the timescales that construction works in. So design and construction, it can, you know, any a modest building can take, you know, a year to design and a year to build. Technology's moved on, so there's a real challenge about how you how you develop space and design space because the things you're designing for today won't be like that tomorrow. You know, you, you, you know, once upon a time it was a piece of kit, now it's an app, and that's the kind of challenge and what makes what makes designing these these spaces really interesting and while going back to flexibility and adaptability is really key because everything's changing and i imagine that kind of plays into the fact that you don't want to be too specialist then in how you design a building because you do need to be as you said flexible because you don't know what the tenants of tomorrow are going to need that is that that's utopia that is the trick and that's where that, that's where i think we are incredibly good at what we do in the sense of trying to resist the urges of the user who you know the scientist the user is looking very much at the very specific because that's actually what they do day to day that's how they work that's how they think and we have to make people step back and go actually no just let's let's think about how this might work from a long-term strategy and how this space could adapt so try not to simple things like try not to Try not to put a sink in the middle of a space that's really hard to move in the future. Put it at the outside edge of the space, which means the space becomes more adaptable. And but but it then goes back to your fundamental principles that we were talking about earlier. Is getting those fundamental principles of the building right. So a good structure, a good floor to floor height, all those basics that are really hard to put in later on actually make the space long term. You know, in, in a long term basis, very adaptable. And then that goes back to your sustainability agenda where. Actually, if you make 
if, if you put in some simple strategies and make it really robust, it, 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 it hardwires in that adaptability. And that's why, you know, that's why you can see certain buildings that, you know, Victorian buildings that, that, that are finding multiple different reboots and lives because actually some of the basics were already hardwired in because of the way they responded to the technical challenges of, of the time. Laura, when you were telling us earlier about all the drainage systems and how you have to get that right and you have to watch airflow, it, it just feels like science is quite strict in terms of building guidelines. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's lots of legislation and guidance that has to be followed in, in, relative to the different types of science, whether you be dealing with pathogens or you're dealing with electronics. Um, you know, again, the the guidance documents that are there that you would lean towards a very different relative to those different kinds of science so yeah it's really important to be kind of abreast with those and the ever-changing requirements of them as well you all have mentioned how different sciences require different things like life sciences have different requirements than those that are chemistry labs so i imagine one of the key things to know is who you are designing for yes and no <laughs> yes, ultimately, yes. Ultimately, ultimately, the science, the process is is fundamental to the design of the building. Um, and depending on the discipline and depending on what they're doing, will very much um, dictate the kinds of spaces. So, you know, if you're talking about developing something, a drug that's going into into people, that is very different to a space where you're looking at something uh, to do with plant technologies. Or something so that they are very much that the very this is what makes it interesting and what means it's not an office where you know an office is designed for relatively simple activities a laboratory can be used for so many different things um and and the nature of research and development is science isn't just about one discipline you know the innovation is actually where lots of these disciplines come together uh, and where they overlap that you get sort of the the innovation so so you've kind of so, so in many ways, it is very specific, but in terms of bringing it back to how we design commercial labs, what you're trying to do is create a, a level, a, a sort of generic level of specification that allows people then to build on that um, and to adapt it to their bespoke needs. Um, and again, it just, it sort of all circles back to that sustainability agenda as well is get the basics right and then you can adapt it. What we're trying to avoid is going so far that then the incoming tenant goes, it doesn't work. I've got to rip it all out. So, and that A isn't sustainable, B is expensive. You know, it, it, there's so many things that are wrong with that. So you need to take it to a certain degree. And, and we we have developed specifications that allow us to get, a, you know, a, a, a reasonable generic specification that will work for most tenants, certainly the, 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 the smaller, less mature tenants, which then can be built upon uh, and adapted and we've got a number of you know a number of buildings certainly one of the first uh uk science incubators that we did about 25 years ago that's been adapted and adapted and adapted over time but the basics are still the same in terms of the the the, the kind of canvas that we gave we gave the tenants they've adapted it but it, it always goes back to the same to the same sort of specification um and then you also need to wrap into the the whole thing about what who are you aiming these commercial facilities at smaller smaller tenants young young tenant you know young companies that you know taking their first steps into commercialization and idea they tend to be really really um easy to cater for in a sense that they're quite 
you know, they just want a little bit of space to develop their ideas. As those companies grow, they, they, there is a, ten, a tendency for more bespoke space and more complicated space um, as they develop their ideas and as they bring in more technologies and things. So it strikes me that the things you need to know when you are approaching converting an office building, a commercial building into a science one, the key is making sure you get the basics right when it comes to drainage, following all the guidance, make sure there's proper air ventilation and all like security things are done for safety reasons. You also need to make sure it's flexible because you don't know how the future is going to be and what the science means of the future will be. And then you also kind of need to, to chat a bit with a potential tenant, kind of get an idea of, you know, the basic needs there. Are they an incubator? Are they something bigger? That kind of jazz. Is, is there anything else people need to know? I think, you know, we, we mentioned it, you know, the same thing, that guidance, we've got to understand the hazardous nature of the space. You know, how are they using the space? Are they simply wearing a lab coat or are they sealed in protective suits and equipment? Um, and really then follow those regulations that manage those hazardous environments. You know, understand the kit that they're putting in the building and how complex it is and how it's got to be either clean or dirty environments. And, and really then... That then goes hand in hand with things like the plant room and the riser space that's required because, you know, very different to other buildings, you know, the projects that we do somewhere between 20 and 50 percent of the building could be taken up by plant, which, again, is very unique to this building type and, and science generally. It's not just about creating some space for a scientist to, to work in. It's about creating an ecosystem within a building that multiple tenants can work with. All right, so let's take it up a notch. Mark, you've been teasing continually throughout this podcast. Sustainability, it's been your favorite word. I have been paying attention to that. I want to talk to you a little bit about one project you guys did. 2016, the GlaxoSmithKline Center for Sustainable Chemistry. It won the Physical Sciences Building of the Year Award the next year from the S-Labs conference. Uh, it's LED Platinum, Lee Platinum, Bram Outstanding. It's supposed to be like the first carbon neutral lab in the U in the UK. How did how did you do it? It came it came out of GSK as an idea, uh, as a series of ideas. Uh, started as a proof of concept. Seven years later, um, it was a building on the University of Nottingham's campus. Slightly different idea, but conceptually the same. The, the same point about designing a building that effectively paid back its carbon. That was the brief. Very simple. Give us a chemistry laboratory. Um, and, and and if we go back to what we were talking about before, chemistry laboratories tend to be far more energy hungry because of what you're having to do in them. So you, you're talking about a very, a, you know, almost although almost the most energy expensive building you can think of, and actually you're going to try and make that carbon neutral in today's terminology. Um, so, but the terminology we were using was that it actually paid back its carbon over a 25 year period. And effectively, every decision, every design decision, every normal thought that you have about putting laboratories together had to be challenged as to how much how much you were spending both in money terms, in cash and in carbon. Because the whole point is you try to design a building with as little embodied carbon as possible. Um, you generate your net generator of energy um, and then through through offsetting from grid electricity, um, the theory being that you pay back the carbon that you've borrowed when you were building the building. That's the sort of concept. But what it means is you are looking at every single nut and bolt in terms of how it's made, where it's made, 
the, the, where's, where's the source material? How does it get fabricated? How does it get to site? And, and trying to balance conflicting um, requirements. So, you know, the win, you know, you take a window, uh, right, let's make, we want lots of natural light. That means we don't use as much artificial light. Great idea. Massive windows. That works great. But hold on. You've got a, you know, it, it potentially issue with so overheating. So well, you don't want to do that. So you want to moderate the size of the window. But then glass is really carbon intensive. So actually, you're spending a lot of a lot of carbon cash, as it were, uh, on that window. So it, it makes you think about everything. And that and, and we literally thought about every nut and bolt. Um, and actually talking to suppliers about how they can uh, take some of the material out, out of some of their products and still achieve the same specification you know, laboratory furniture where you were, well, I think they took something like 20% of the, of the steel out of it without it impacting on its, on its base specification, uh, to the point of going where, where, where's the stone fill coming from for the ground floor slab, you know, which, which, which quarry is it coming from? Because that's really important. And in fact, uh, you know, when, when, when the building was on site, the con- I mean, the contractor, the contractor did so well in terms of, um, understanding the problems and developing this building but they, they they were left with issues of right we we need this stone fill we can get it we can get reclaimed stone but it's from 150 miles away yet we can get freshly quarried stone 25 miles away what's the what's the right choice well actually the right choice was freshly quarried stone in that case because it was nearby and the kind of carbon credits they were using they were having to spend to get it there that was that that was how you made it balanced so it was real really made you think about everything I really like the quote about the you know the client come back and said it's not it's more than just a building it's a whole philosophy and that's when you really take it into then the operational side and when the building is in use and in order for the building to perform the client had really bought into the process so you hear these buzzwords like soft landings and that's all about educating everybody that comes into the building thereafter on how the building should use and how you minimize energy usage and how nighttime cooling works and understanding the relationship of turning lights on and off and when windows should be opened and it really embeds that into everybody's thinking you know from the cleaner to the receptionist to the scientist to the you know manager within the building so I think what's really great about that project was how everybody in the client team bought into you know, net zero carbon and, and what that actually meant. And its success is that, you know, in use, people are really kind of embedding that into everything they do. So it sounds like if we're going to have a sustainable lab building, everyone needs to buy in and you really need to take time to consider every little aspect of that. I do want to ask you guys about one of those, though, because we've mentioned repeatedly how important ventilation is. And I know when it came to this building, it was described as wind driven ventilation what does that mean um well it's not it's not it's not a new concept the basic premise was actually just try and try and make the building um utilize any prevailing wind that might be available um and the concept you know the concept that came out of gsk was 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 to use you know use a a lot of the wind-driven ventilation wind wind driven assistance to the ventilation systems actually as as that as that got developed as we developed that and particularly when we moved it over to chemistry that become more more and more of a challenge about how you create that environment um 
it in a safe manner that we can we can we know is going to work day in day out not just on a windy day but it's but it's really if you sort of strip it back it's about looking it's about looking at the, your environment and looking at how you build design a building and you how you try and design that building to get the best out of what you've got so you know if you're in a hot sunny climate that that's that's different to being in a wet cold environment it, it, it's the basics. It's what we go to university for. It's what we spend years learning about. Is how it's designing, designing to all these factors on on the Nottingham project. It was very, very, very much about the environmental factors that it was responding to, um, you know, rather than any any other contextual factors. Now, for, for anyone who hasn't actually seen a picture of this building, I would advise you to go Google it. You'll see right off the bat some of the ways that you guys helped, you know, cut the carbon costs and emissions. It's largely timber and CLT. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, and there's a wildflower blanket roof as well. And then how did you go about actually ensuring that it could generate energy to the extent that it could export it? Again, it's 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 about building forms that, that, that respond to the needs. So we basically needed very fundamentally just needed a lot of PV. So that 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 created the basic form. And that was something that came came through from the original um, proof of concept. Is, is is that kind of the volume shape of the building needs to have a lot of it effectively facing south, um, and then as part of the university, because they're on a campus, they were able to say, well, we can we can use um, um, a biomass CHP, which we probably wouldn't use now, but at that stage was at that time was a was a good choice, um, and that allows them to actually create some heat export to some neighbouring buildings. Um, and that allowed us to know that we could overgenerate, be a net exporter of energy. And are those principles that you guys can take forward to your other buildings that you guys are designing, Laura? Uh, yeah, no, definitely things that we can take forward. I mean, the, the GSK one is obviously unique, you know, because of its site. It's very much a groundscaping building, and and often you don't have that in urban context. So, you know, we are doing things a bit differently in the likes of Manchester, you know, out at Alderley Park, and in and in Liverpool in much more urban conditions because you have to address the surroundings but but I think a lot of the principles and the approaches and the the methodology from GSK is taken into the science buildings we're doing today. All right class so in conclusion what we've learned today we've learned what lab ready means how we need to be designing these buildings we know that we need to make sure we get the basics right when it comes to safety concerns as well as drainage ventilation all that jazz we need to make sure, again, that we know our guidance and we're considering continually all the hazards that these sciences might have involved in them. We need to think about the environment that they're around because these need to be attractive places that people can get to easily so that these scientists can recruit the top talent available to them. We also need to make sure, above all, that our spaces are flexible because we don't know what the future holds for science, which is exciting. And it is possible to make a sustainable science building. Oh, that's a lot that we learned. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Julia. Thanks, Julia. If you want to learn more about Fairhurst Design Group, head over to fairhurst.com. And if you want to stay in the loop on the latest property news, make sure you head on over to placenorthwest.co.uk. And to catch all of our Masterclass series, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss a single episode. I'm Julia Hatmaker. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>